All right. Yeah. Uh, let's go ahead and open up in prayer, and we'll jump in. Lord, we thank you for your kindness and your goodness. We don't deserve to, to be standing here today. Every breath that we have comes from you, and you have given us much more than, than what we deserve, um, even in your, your common grace, but even more so in, in your loving special grace, God. You have laid down your life for us, and we thank you for that. God, help us to have a, a better understanding of who you are, a firmer grip on your, your characteristics, your, your attributes, who you are, and who we are in light of that. God, I pray that you would help us to take this information, not only um, just store it away in our, our minds and our memories, but that it would become practical and um, that we would have a, a real understanding of who you are and, and apply that to our lives and to our evangelism and to our, our walk with you. God, I pray for the kids and the other classes that you would be speaking to them, drawing them to yourself. Um, and for the, the Romans class, God, that you'd be working in that class in a special way and um, you'd just be exalted in our hearts this morning. I pray this in your name. Amen. All right. So I have a, a confession to make. I didn't really look over my notes this morning like I planned to. I woke up early to go and look over my notes and I told Britt, well, I got to go look over my notes while I left her to fend for herself with the kids. Um, and then I got distracted looking into uh, an issue that is related to the, the immutability of God that we talked about last week. I, I was listening to something this week uh, from good old R.C. Sproul, and he was talking about uh, one of the, the supposed controversies of God's immutability and how he changes um, you guys remember King Josiah from the Old Testament? You remember what he's known for? He, didn't he change God's mind? Oh yeah, he did that. <laughs> no, he, he found something. What did he find? Scriptures. Scriptures. Yeah, and it had been lost, right? Um, well, Josiah's dad was Ammon, or, or Ammon, and his dad was Manasseh, and his dad was, anybody know? Yeah, I didn't think so, I wouldn't know. Uh, Hezekiah, and what do we know about Hezekiah? He did some good stuff. Yeah, he was a good king, right? Much better than Manasseh. Manasseh was a evil, wicked, idolatrous king. What do we know about Manasseh in relation to God's immutability and accusations that come against God's immutability? Manasseh or Hezekiah? Hezekiah. Thank you. He had... There was an illness involved. Yeah, he was, he was sick, remember? And he was told that he was going to die um, pretty plainly. Yeah, 15 years. So that... We can find that story in 2 Kings first six or seven verses, how he was sick and God told him, well, you're going to die. And then he prayed and uh, the, the prophet came back and told him, well, God gave you 15 more years. And so people will point to that and they'll say, well, here's an example of how God changes, how he isn't immutable, but he, he changes his mind. And the, the interesting thing that I started to, to study and try to figure out, because there are different opinions on it, but... Um, 
R.C. Sproul is of the opinion that um, when Manasseh took over, he was only 12 after um, Hezekiah's death. So that's where the, the difference comes in. When did Hezekiah die? So if you look down in 2 Kings 20, verse 21 says, So Hezekiah slept with his fathers, and Manasseh his son became king in his place. And then 21.1 says that Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Hephzibah. And so the, the thought that R.C. Sproul put forward was that if Hezekiah had died when he was originally supposed to die with that sickness, then his son Manasseh wouldn't have been born. And Manasseh went on to Father Amon, who Father Josiah, and these are all kings um, of Israel. What's that? Neither of them would have been. And neither of them would have been. Um, and what do we know about the kings of Israel? What line do they come from? What tribe of, of Jacob? What tribe of Israel? Judah. Tribe of Judah. And who else do we know from the tribe of Judah? Jesus, right? Um, look at the, the first chapter of Matthew. It goes over the genealogy of, of Jesus. Um, let's see. And down in, in verse 10 of Matthew 1, it says that Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was a father of Amon. Amon was a father of Josiah. And so we see those kings mentioned there in, in Matthew 1. And so the, the thought was that if Hezekiah would have died if he wouldn't have been given those 15 years, then Manasseh wouldn't have been born, Amen, and Josiah, and our Savior wouldn't have been born. But obviously God was fully aware that he was going to do what he was going to do. Um, he's not changing his mind in some kind of sense that uh, negates his immutability. So I thought that was cool, and that's why <laughs> I was procrastinating this morning. But well, the, the reality of it is, that if God does live outside of time, as we believe scriptures teach, and we are fully locked in time, that's the only thing that we know, then there is a, um, a sense in which there's just going to be some confusion, because the only thing we can understand is within time, but God is already in the future, <laughs> which is, I mean, our minds can't even begin to wrap around. So if God's already in the future, when we see stuff like that in Scripture, then there's obviously no way that he could be changing at all if he's outside of time. Yeah. But for us, it comes across that way, and we always have to remember that it's our limitations, not God's, that's at play. Yeah, we have a completely different perspective, perception, than he does. He is infallible, and we are <laughs> mightily fallible. All right. Um, before we jump into the, the omnis, any other thoughts or questions on the immutable attributes that we've gone over up to this point? Yeah, that's a good question, Mark. It's not a question, Mark, in the sense. It's how they word it in the, in the context of it because God doesn't change his mind. But it's in the sense of the way God tells Hezekiah or Hezekiah in the present bows the knee, if you want to call that, but reconfirms the fact that God is, and he prays to God uh, for the very things he wants, which is 
continuation of life. He wants to live. He goes through a young man in the ascent. So, in that, God already knew what he was going to do. God had already known that he was going to live 15 more years. So, I guess the way it's worded, it makes you think that God's changing his mind, but he's not in that sense. And there's some other instances too down the road. Because the God allows us, and you find in most cases, he changes his mind because the people or a person changes their attitude of who God is. They really come back to recognize that he is the Almighty Solomon Rock. Yeah. And that in himself brings the relation back to a relationship between those two entities, God primarily. And God just reveals to them certain things that's already going to happen in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we talked about that a little bit last week, how God's relationship to sin is, is always consistent. His relationship to righteousness is always consistent. Um, and so we, again, looking into a situation, we might say, okay, well, he changed his mind, but he was consistent all throughout in relation to, to sin and to righteousness. We need to, to understand that. Um, and you brought up the, the issue of the, the language of verbiage that's used there. So we have these two words that are really closely related, anthropopathism and anthropomorphism. Big words. Um, anthropopathism speaks to God's, um, how we understand God's un, not, not unphysical, what is that word? Immaterial attributes. Um, how he responds to things emotionally, um, and his, the anthropomorphism really has become known to include both anthropopathism and anthropomorphism, but um, that would speak to his physical characteristics, the fact that we can read scripture that talk about God's mighty right hand when we know God doesn't have a right hand. Um, we know he doesn't have feathers. He doesn't have physical characteristics because God is spirit, and we worship him in spirit and in truth. Um, but also these immaterial characteristics and this language that we attribute to God at such as repent or relenting. Um, those are just terms that we use to better understand God because we are finite and that's the, the way that we can understand him. So that's how he reveals himself to us so we can better understand him. So, yes. So we, we sometimes think because things change in our world that God has changed or changes in our world. But God's always yeah. It's just like um, salvation. We've all been condemned to death, and our destiny, and our uh, our condemnation says we're going to spend eternity in a lake of fire. But when we accept Christ, that changes. God didn't change; it's just our future changed. Yeah, He changed us. He took our heart of stone and gave us a heart of flesh, and we've. The old nature is gone. New that's, nature is gone. not God changing. That's just our destination. <clears throat> yeah. Even yeah. though we work in them And it's really got to be consistent because if we believe in Jesus and we were still condemned to the lake of fire, then he'd be inconsistent at that point. Yeah. And if he just showed mercy and grace across the board without fulfilling that that propitiation and, and justly satisfying the condemnation that we deserve, then again, he would be inconsistent. So yeah, even in 
so soteriology and the doctrine of salvation, we can see these truths coming out. And so, again, we need to remember that all these, these truths, all these doctrines are interdependent, they're interrelated. And so we need to constantly be checking ourselves and our doctrine, making sure that um, it's consistent with each other. Because when, when you have one understanding of who God is and that doesn't apply across the board to, to a different area of, of theology, you can get into some really serious error. So it's always something good to be checking. All right. Well, let's look at the, the omnipotence of God. So we're going to be going through these, these omnis, um, which mean all. And omnipotence speaks of his power, that he, is, he has full power physically and spiritually. And this is harmonious with his nature. Again, it doesn't, um, it's not contradictory to his nature. It's um, completely conforming with who he is. His power is only confined by his own will. It is always exercised perfect, purposefully to the glory of himself. So he's not confined by anything else. We talked about his transcendence, about his aseity, about how he is above and outside of everything else. He doesn't have any other force bearing down on him. Um, that includes his, his own power. His own limitation is his, his will. Let's look up some, some verses related to God's omnipotence. Will somebody grab Job 42.2, Daniel 4, 34 and 35, Nahum 1, 5 and 6, and Colossians 1, 16. I'll do Nahum. All right. I don't get to turn that very often. <laughs> I think our kids just studied Nahum last week, maybe two weeks ago. So we've got Job and Nahum. Who's got Daniel? I do, Nahum. All right. You need somebody to take Job? I think Jerry's got Job. Uh, looking for Colossians, though. You can grab Colossians 116. All right, you got Job, Jerry? I do. I know that you can do all things. And that no purpose of years can be thwarted. All right. So Job, Job, <laughs> Job had a, a, a biblical understanding of God's omnipotence, that he can do all things and nothing that he desires can be thwarted. Um, that's not always our, our perspective or our understanding. We can sometimes slip out of that. And I think we can even see examples in the Bible of people who have slipped out of that. They didn't trust in God's omnipotence. Um, you guys think of any examples, any biblical examples, people who didn't have Job's understanding of God? Jonah. Yeah, Jonah. He, he's related to, to Nahum in a sense, right? Remember that Jonah went and he ministered to, um, to Nineveh reluctantly. A uh, hundred years later, Nahum shows up and... God exercises his judgment on, on Nineveh, but Jonah was reluctant. He didn't have that understanding of God's omnipotence. He was fearful. Why don't we look at that passage in, in Nahum, Nahum 1, 5, and 6. So cool. Mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. 
Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. Amen. That's not a popular understanding today, is it? But how how much is that needed today? You know, when we have earthquakes and fires and weird tornado, hurricane type things. Um, it's crazy that God is in control of all that and doesn't take place without His His exercising that. That's cool. In Daniel four thirty four and thirty five. And at the end of the time, at the end of the time, I have a commander lifting my eyes to heaven. My understanding returned to me, and I bless the Most High and praise and honor him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are refuted as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth no one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? And what was it that gave Nebuchadnezzar that understanding of God's omnipotent power? God's omnipotent power. <laughs> yeah, God humbled him, right? He changed the mind of him to, to be like an animal, to be eating grass for, for seven years. That's, that's awesome. Again, <laughs> let's not get to that point where we have to be humbled uh, like that before we realize that, that God is the one who shakes the earth. All right, and then Colossians 1.16. Colossians 1.16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. All right, and who is that verse speaking about? Let's be a little bit more specific. Yeah, God the Son is speaking about Christ, right? So those same attributes that are ascribed to to God the Father throughout the Old Testament are ascribed to to God the Son there in Colossians. I'm going to go back a little bit, starting in verse 13. It says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. He, that is the Son, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And then it goes into 16, for by him all things were created. So, again, that, that's cool to have that interconnected understanding of the attributes of God, of his omnipotence. He is all-powerful, and then relate that to the, the Trinity that we serve and worship a triune God who is one. Uh, we spoke of the simplicity of God, that God is one, a couple weeks ago, um, and realizing that all of those attributes apply just as much to the Son and to the Spirit as they do to the Father. Any other thoughts on omnipotence before we move on? Can God create a rock so big that he can't Let's see. Can God do anything? <laughs> Can God create a rock so big that he can't lift it? What do you guys think? How would you respond to that? Surely you've heard such such questions. It's, it's an innate question. It's one that has no meaning because God would do that if he wanted. <clears throat> because it's, it's not in his thought process. He's not a wave lifter. 
if you want to put it in those terms. Yeah. He's not interested in creating a rocket, so maybe he can't lift it. So could he? I guess he could if he got to do anything he wants, but I'm not thinking that that's something on his priority list. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Yeah, this, this last Wednesday, we watched that 15-minute video or so on um, apologetics and how to relate with people and how to challenge people in their worldview and, and what they believe and how they can um, account for what they believe. How would that relate to, to this question? I don't know how many of us were here on Wednesday. So is Brittany. Brittany, there you go. He said a lot. Yeah, I mean, it's basically basically if someone asks you that question. They're presenting a standard, right? They're saying, okay, so if God can't meet the standard that's behind this question, then then God is not God. Well, where do they get that standard? And, and the simple answer to the question, that second one there, is no, because if he can make it, he can lift it. It's that simple. <laughs> right? And so if there's a standard that says, well, then that means he's not God, well, where did you get that standard? And just challenge them on that. Yeah. Just a made-up and in that that question, they're appealing to the the laws of logic, right? Um, that something has to be reasonable, it has to be logical, and they're saying, "Well, your God is illogical, based on what? By what standard? How do you even account for for the the laws of logic for these rules that you're trying to hold me and my God to? Um, you can't do that without the the God of the Bible, without the Christian worldview, um, and God because He because logic flows out of God, because he um, is the, the perfect example of what is logical, he can't do something and not do something at the same time in the same way. That's a, a contradiction of logic, and our God is completely logical. So, when I hear that's, that question, I go back to Proverbs. I can't quote it, but it basically says, don't answer a fool in his folly, lest you become like him. Yeah. And what's the next verse? Answer a fool how his folly deserves. Yeah, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Yeah. yeah. So good. instead of playing his game, expose his love. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> That's good. Yeah, you step into his worldview and you expose him and you show him, well, you're using these standards, you're using these these rules, these presuppositions, but you have no way to account for for why those are even true, why they exist if um if you don't start with the God of the Bible. And then you step out of his worldview into a biblical worldview and you explain to him, well, God is the ultimate being. He is the most transcendent being that there is. And he created us in his image with his likeness, with the ability to think and to reason with emotion and will, uh, with volition. And that's why we're able to, to think in a way that, that conforms with reality because we are created in the image of God. Cool, cool. All right, let's look and see what good old John Calvin had to say. He says, God is deemed omnipotent because governing heaven and earth by his providence, he so overrules all things that nothing happens without his counsel. It's pretty cool, right? Any other attributes of God that that ties in with? 
Pretty much, right? Yeah. Let's look at this quote from, from John Frame. Um, these are uh, a list of things from his systematic theology. It says that God is able to do whatever he wants. Um, so this is kind of his answer to foolish questions like, can God lift a rock so big? Or make a rock so big you can't lift it? Well, he can do whatever he wants, right? Um, and then there's some, some conditional um, statements that follow. God is able to do anything logically possible. So again, if it doesn't make sense, if it's not logical, then he's not going to do it. Not because he doesn't have enough power, but because it's, it doesn't make sense. It's illogical. It doesn't comport with reality. God can do whatever is possible. God has infinite power. God has power over all things. God has more power than anyone else, and God can do anything compatible with his attributes. If you have those things in, locked in in your head, when someone asks you a question, like the rock question, or saying something like, can God be and not be at the same time? Well, no. That, no I mean, that, that is illogical. But we're not even asserting that. Like, yeah. We're never asserting that God has not been. And yet the only reason people ask questions like that is because they have some standard and they want to catch you mm-hmm. and say, well, see, he doesn't meet the standard. And the... The answer to that isn't play their game. The answer is to question their standard. Mm-hmm. If you play their game, you can ask, answer a, a dozen questions in a way that is going to satisfy their, their question, and they'll just carry on. Well, what about this? What about this? What about this? Because what are they by, by nature? They're not redeemed, right? They're not enlightened. They're children of wrath. They're enemies of God, and unless God opens up their eyes, then... They're not going to be in a place where they're able to to accept and embrace that um, because they're enemies of God. Any other thoughts on that while people are taking down notes before we go to the next slide? God's omnipotence. It's pretty cool. All right, let's move on a little bit. We can get those notes in a little bit if we need to. All right. The Hebrew word for almighty is Shaddai. One of the names of God is El Shaddai, almighty God. Never is a term almighty used of anyone else in the Hebrew Old Testament. So that is something that is unique to God. That's good to remember. Um, If you talk to a, a Jehovah's Witness, they might make a distinction between mighty God and almighty God. And they'll say that Almighty God is used exclusively of the Father, and, and they'll realize this, and they'll reference this same um, principle that we're talking about now. And then they'll say, but Jesus is only ever called Mighty God. You look at Revelation chapter 1, and you can see that Jesus there is referred to as Almighty God. So the same term that is unique to God. He is the only one who's ever referred to as Almighty. Um, again, applies to, to the second person of the Trinity. To Jesus as well. All right, Charles Hodge says, We can do very little. God can do whatever He wills. We, beyond very narrow limits, must use means to accomplish our ends. With God, means are unnecessary. He wills, and it is done. Um, that's how He created, right? He just spoke it into existence, and poof, there it was. That's not to say that God doesn't use means, but they're not necessary. They're not required. He chooses to use means. He chooses to use us to 
to speak truth into the lives of other people, but that's not necessary. It's not like he's dependent upon us and he's not able to, um, to save others unless we, we go out and we evangelize or we witness. He's certainly able to. So while he's not, um, he's not restricted to the use of means, um, he does choose to use them. All right. That kind is like, kind of like uh, you know we tend to think of that when something good happens to us, but then when something terrible happens, do we still believe that? Yeah. You know, like Job, he was mm-hmm. like, well, maybe can I from my mother's womb, and maybe shall I return? Um, the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen. You know, I mean that's just that's pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah, he was consistent in his theology. That's good. That's not always easy to do. It's when you get into those tough times that you start to, yeah. to question and doubt your theology. Or when, when you're in a, a personal situation that maybe you start to compromise. Um, there have been a lot of solid Christians who have taught the Bible faithfully until they have a family member who comes out as homosexual. And then suddenly their view on that changes. Um, so yeah, it's good to remember that our circumstances don't determine our theology, but our theology needs to be consistent even throughout difficult times and, uh, functions of life. All right, let's look at the omniscience of God. What does the omniscience of God speak to? He is all what? All knowing. God is all knowing. He knows all and all alternatives to reality comprehensively. Um, yes. His knowledge works in accordance with all other attributes. Again, they're all interconnected, interdependent upon each other. Let's look up these verses. We've got one in Job, a couple in Matthew, one in Romans, and First John. Who's going to grab those? I got Job. All right. Yeah, you're already there, right? I'll take two and that. Okay. And Romans. All right, Jim. First John. All right, Jerry. All right. So that that first um, phrase there, I want to speak to a little bit. It says that he knows all things and all alternatives to reality comprehensively. Um, You think of, I think... We're going to read it, maybe, in Matthew. Um, so when when Jesus speaks to the, the different cities and he says, well, if Sodom and Gomorrah would have repented, or if this would have happened in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. And out of this comes this idea of, of Molinism, this middle knowledge that God is somehow responding to events, to different things. Um, that's not what this phrase is, is saying. That's not what we are affirming to. That's just a, a thought that is out there and it's becoming more and more popular. So just know that that's not something that we affirm. But Job 37.16. Do you know the balancing of the clouds of the wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge? All right, perfect in knowledge. And we see many examples of that throughout Job. Um, his realization that God isn't lacking in his understanding, lacking in knowledge at all. Got those Matthew verses, Jeremy? When you are praying, 
Do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And it's right after that that he launches into the disciples' prayer, which people often you know, take and just reiterate over and over and over again. And Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. All right. So those miracles didn't take place in those cities, but Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, said if they had, then they would have repented. And so that's where that um, alternatives to reality comes in, that he knows what would have taken place in a different set of, of situation and circumstances. And Romans 11.33 the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, hmm. how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Right. Amen. What a great verse. First John. In whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. All right. Pretty self-explanatory, right? Nothing that God doesn't know. His ways are unsearchable, unscrutable. His knowledge is just as extensive as his lordship. That's pretty cool. What does that mean? His knowledge is just as extensive as his lordship. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. If he's find something he's not lord over, that's something he doesn't know about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, Mr. Arminius, who we agree with on some things sometimes, he says he knows things substantial and accidental of every kind, the actions and passions and modes and circumstances of all things, external words and deeds, internal thoughts deliberations, counsels, determinations, and the entities of reason, whether complex or simple. It's pretty all-inclusive, isn't it? Yeah, I wouldn't expect that quote from him. But Have you ever read any of his works, Tyler? Um, no. Then why wouldn't you expect it? Because <laughs> <laughs> of your presupposition. That's right. <laughs> God is not bound by time. Therefore, he is able to know the future perfectly and comprehensively. This is what we call foreknowledge. All right. So his knowledge, again, it's not bound to a, a specific point in time because he is outside of time. Um, it's, he's not bound by time. He knows everything perfectly, comprehensively. The verb prognosco is used of God's perfectly purposed relational knowledge of everyone who is in his redemptive plan before they exist in time and space. Um, and the, 
the meat of that Greek word gnosko is to know in an intimate, personal way. Um, and pro, the, the prefix, is before. So he knows intimately, personally, uh, in a very relational way beforehand. It's pretty cool. How should we reconcile God's perfect foreknowledge and man's responsibility to choose freely? 30 seconds. Or yep. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I prefer multiple choice. Had <laughs> <laughs> <Atta> a girl. <laughs> that, that's not an easy one to wrestle with, is it? I was trying to remember the first one. I guess it really depends on how you define foreknowledge, too. Because, um, again, to, to know in that intimate, personal way, uh, that's something that, that God did beforehand. So it's not merely as if he um, just looks into the future and he sees our response, but he knows us. He has, he has made that first step. We love him because he first loved us. Um, he's the one who has drawn us to himself, and we, we still have that responsibility to respond. We are still accountable as individuals, um, but God is the one who who is drawing us to himself. He's the one who's calling the shots. Yes? So if God knows all things perfectly, which is future to us, you know, Melissa just whispered to me uh, how it's foreknowledge to us, but for him it's just knowledge because he lives outside of time. Hmm. There is no before for him. But if God knows all things perfectly, including what we were all going to wear today, what we're going to have for lunch today, what we're going to do with our afternoons, what time we're going to go to sleep, could it ever be any other way? No. Right? If he knows it, then it has to be that way. But is it that so way because... <laughs> yeah, is it that way because he determined it, or... Did we determine it out of our own volitional free will, and he just happens to know that reactively? There you go. So is God responding to man, or are we responding to God? Yeah, that's the thing. He's the one that created us, and so he knows us inside and out. And, I mean, just like, you know, us with a horse or something, or, or an animal that we really take time with. You know, we can kind of, uh, we learn to know them really good. Yeah. And we know kind of what their hang-ups are, what they're going to do when they cross this wall, this and that. And yeah. And that's kind of the same way we got. I mean, he, he knows us inside and out. Yeah. It's kind of a, a fun thing to think through, huh? And we're not going to have time to fully <laughs> dig into that one. But. Today I have uh, yes. <laughs> Maybe in eternity we'll get a, a better grasp on that one. But is that purpose, or we were created for God's purpose to glorify Him? Yes. So in choosing that, it is our responsibility to realize who God is, and 
to seek him to the point where our, our freedom in choosing is in direct line with what God wants. Yeah. Not that we can't do the other, obviously we do, because that's what we do. We're human. We live in a fresh state. But anyway, we're still under the obligation to truly understand what God is doing in our lives and who we are and what we're supposed to be to him. We're going to choose to do the things that God already knows we're going to do. Yeah. But He gave us that ability to glorify Him by doing that. We are responsible for our decision. We are we're culpable as human beings, right? Mm-hmm. But um, we are unable in our fleshly nature, again, as children of wrath, as enemies of God, to choose God. We can't. We can't do that unless we are regenerated, unless we are created anew by him. He's the one who gives us that ability to turn to him, to respond to him. Um, because we are dead in our trespasses and sin. And and dead man can't can't choose life, right? Unless we are given life by God. So another headache for you this week. Come back next week. <laughs> we'll just keep them coming. All right. Uh, A.W. Tozer says, because God knows all things perfectly, he knows no thing better than any other thing, but all things equally well. He never discovers anything. He is never surprised, never amazed. He never wonders about anything, nor does he seek information to ask questions. We discussed this last week, right? God doesn't get his information, his knowledge from anybody else. He doesn't grow, doesn't progress. He has always been God from eternity past to eternity future. Um, And we need to constantly remind ourselves and others of that that god was never a man god didn't progress god doesn't learn he doesn't grow he is god he is transcendent from eternity to eternity all right we are on our last attribute the omnipresence of god that god is all there he exists in multiple places simultaneously he has no spatial dimensions he has no spatial restrictions, um, whereas you and I can only be in one place at one time. God is everywhere. He is immense, always available, and nobody can hide from him. And just like we discussed last week, that has great implications for the, the believer, that he is always with us. And that should be something that causes the unbeliever to tremble that he is always there. There is nothing that is hidden from his sight. And even the believer, when we are tempted to sin, that should cause us to to realize, my God is present, my God is here. Um, Nothing can be hidden from him. All right, Psalm 139. Who's got that one? Yes. Yes, all right. I'll grab that Jeremiah passage, Matthew 28, 20. Who's got that? Psalm 
but the night shines as the day. Darkness and the light are both alike to you. Amen. Jeremiah 23, 23 and 24 say, I am a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not a God far off is imminent. Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heaven and the earth, declares the Lord? That's pretty cool. Lest you forget, right? <laughs> All right, Matthew 28, 20. Jesus said to them, Lo, I am with you always, even till the end of the age. All right, once again, these attributes apply just as much to, to Christ as they do to the Father. All right, origin. We do not ask the question, how will we go to God? As though we thought that God existed in some place. God is of too excellent a nature for any place. He holds all things in his power, and he himself is not confined by anything whatever. No, no restrictions on God, uh, even in his presence. And again, from frame... There are places where God's presence is more intense, more intimate. When God makes his dwelling in a place, that place becomes his throne. So, we can say that of, of heaven, right? Where he dwells in a unique, intimate way. Um, I heard a quote this last week that suggested that uh, corporate prayer is more um, pleasing to God than our private prayer which might cause you to grimace and um, just think, well, is that true? But you think, well, if God is pleased with the prayer of one saint, how much more would he be pleased with the prayers of two or three? And he has created his body, the church, to come together as the called out ones, as the gathered assembly uh, to represent him. So that's an interesting thought that... There are different places where God's presence is more intense. Remember, Moses stepped on that ground. He was told, this is holy ground. You need to remove your sandals. But he wasn't told that at other points in his life or in his ministry. So that's quite a thought. But God is everywhere, right? There's nowhere where he's not. When you so. think about people, too, we see multiple times in the gospel that Jesus knows people's hearts. So his... He has a presence there in the sense that he's aware and he knows, and obviously that doesn't escape from his sight. And then we see that we are temples of the Holy Spirit and that we set Christ apart as Lord in our hearts. And so, believer and non-believer, there's a presence factor in both, but obviously with the believer it's more intense, more intimate. Yeah. Yeah. He takes up residence. He is abiding with us, dwelling in us. Um, Whereas, like you say, he's not unaware of the heart of the unbeliever. In Mark 2, he was aware that they were reasoning in their hearts that, well, who is this man that said that he can forgive sins? He wasn't unaware of that, but he wasn't residing within them. Yeah, I was going to say also that there's, there's places to be in a Christian and in a Christian. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes, sir. Indeed. All right, William Evans. Just as the soul is present in every part of the body, so God is present in every part of the world. In Las Vegas, as much as in Payson Bible Church. Crazy.
thoughts or questions on God's omnipresence. Each one of these are just, it's a trip, right? And they should cause us to, to worship. They should drive us to, to adore our God and who he is, just to reflect on these different aspects of who our God is. That's, that's why he's given them to us in scripture, so that we can glorify him, so that he can receive that, that honor and that praise and that glory. And, uh, our boys this morning, our kids this morning, are uh, working on the verse, um, Isaiah 42, 8, that God shares his glory with no one else. He is a jealous God, um, and his name alone is God. And that is good because he is God, because he is transcendent. Um, and it's good for us to, to pause and to recognize him for who he is and to praise him for that. All right. Reflection. Describe how the lost and the found should have different responses to the omni-attributes. It's very comfort for us. Mm -hmm. Trembling and fear for the lost. Same God, same attributes. Different responses because we have different hearts, right? Different natures. The same sun, hardness clay, and no flesh. Man. Truly lost, so I don't think they care. Yeah. Yeah. They should. <laughs> yeah, they're just apathetic to it right now, right? Yeah, maybe it would be best to ask the question in the context of that judgment day. Yeah. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Can you imagine standing before the, the king of the universe and having denied him? Every day of your existence, man, yeah, I'd, I'd be shaking. We'll still be shaking, <laughs> but don't wipe away our tears, though. <laughs> yeah, man. As a believer, we don't truly understand the true depth mysteries of what those those things are that God is. Yeah, it's in our innate nature to be all by by whom God is. Yeah. One day he'll know. Yeah, what a scary day. Considering God's immutability that he does not change, will we be able to do a good job of bringing up children in such an evil world as we have today? seems like more and more people are asking that question, especially millennial type people um, and, and younger. They're saying, well, why would I even have kids if I'm just going to bring them up in this world? Um, and that's not something that really a, a Christian should be all too concerned with because God is consistent. He never changes. He has told us to, to increase and to multiply, and, and we need to obey that command without questioning his, his goodness and who he is. Yeah. It would be. Yeah. A self-imposed rapture. 
Yeah. Yeah. No restrainer to hold back the sin. And maybe someday, if Christians keep having kids and atheists stop having kids, then mm-hmm. that balance will weigh in the other way. But if they're in Christ, there's hope. If they're in Christ, that's what we're looking forward to, isn't it? Yeah. In Christ. Amen. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're stealing yeah. my thunder from the sermon here. And <laughs> <laughs> Jim's going to preach today. <laughs> that's the direction I'm going. Yeah, death on, on both sides is exaggerated for the believer. Because if somebody is in Christ... We can have true joy in that, knowing that their their pain, their suffering is gone. But if they're not, then it's not just okay. Well, I can't, you know, eat a burger with them anymore. I can't sit down and, and play a game with them. It's they're suffering for eternity for their sin that they they justly should be suffering for, um, and that's intensified as well. It should be. A child is a miracle from God. Not happen, and it's never part. The child belongs to God. And all we're supposed to do is responsible for making as knowledgeable as we can about who God is. God does the rest. Yeah. yeah. Again, we still have a responsibility, but God is the one who does work. He gives an increase. We just plant, we just water, as we should. All right. Who is like our God in all the earth? Somebody name someone. Right. <laughs> Again, I love those passages where where God is the one laying down the gauntlet and putting down the challenge. Like, who was there? Who was there when I did this? Who wants to step up and tell me how to create the world? Nobody can do it. So, shut your mouth. Right. <laughs> uh, that's what the the law is for to keep every mouth accountable, to silence every mouth, and hold all of our hearts accountable to God. Um, he he does that perfectly because he alone is the Lord. We see that in Jeremiah ten six, a verse we should commit to memory this week. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and great is your name in might. What a awesome God we serve. All right, let's pray. God, we thank you once again for who you are. We thank you that you are all-powerful, all-knowing, that you are everywhere, and there is nowhere where we can hide from your presence. God, again, help us to apply these to our lives. Help us to share these truths with uh, our, our friends, our family, our, our relatives, our coworkers who, who don't know who you are. God, help us to stand boldly on the truth of your word and to declare your, your person um, with, with fear and trembling, but with joy and, and reverence, knowing that you are a God who is worthy of our praise. You are a God who has taken us and transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your marvelous light. God, we are so unworthy, but we are so thankful. We praise you for it. Amen. Amen.